Welcome back to Scripture Central. I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson to talk with you about the Come Follow Me lesson, 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 13. And in this chapter, Paul discusses a lot of misunderstandings. He wants to correct their misunderstandings on dietary needs and idolatry, on ordinances and gifts of the Spirit. And this is one of the best chapters in all Scripture on the gifts of the Spirit. I absolutely love this section of Scriptures and hope that you can feel the Spirit of the Lord as you study these chapters. Just by way of review, if you want to go back and look at some of these charts that I've used from John W. Welch's Charting the New Testament, you can see where the book of Corinthians falls in place. It's quite early. It's during his third mission. He's already spent 18 months with them. Last week's in chapters 1 through 6, it addressed the disturbing reports that were made about the Corinthian church. But now in chapters 7 through 15, we're talking about these answers to the Corinthian questions. Today, we're starting in chapter 8, but it's all part of these answers to the questions. Paul actually wrote probably seven letters back and forth, but we've only got two of them. So we only know a portion of the story, and we don't know all the issues. And as a result, it's very confusing at times. Also, this is a letter of correction. He's constantly correcting them. And so it is easy to misunderstand, especially if we're just reading the King James translation. I think some of the words in the ancient uh, 16th century make it even more difficult to understand. So I'd encourage you to pray before you read the scriptures and to check other translations. Just as a reminder, he is writing this from Ephesus, probably during the spring time, and he's telling them that he's going to be coming there. And as you look at the book of Acts, you can see where this book falls chronologically. Between Acts chapters 18 and 21 is when he's on his time, both in his second mission, serving in Corinth in Greece, and then his third mission when he's writing them where he's stationed now over in Ephesus. Chapter 8 begins in the ESV translation. Now concerning foods offered to idols. Now in the Greco-Roman world, almost every type of meat that was used in the stores to buy for people to consume had been first offered to an idol and then taken to the stores and sold generally. And so as a result, as a good Jewish man or woman, you would not want to eat that food because it's already been contaminated by idolatry. But Paul goes forward to say in verse 4, we know that an idol is nothing. You don't need to be worried about these kind of things. It's not an issue because it doesn't matter if it was offered to an idol, except if it's going to offend someone else. And if it's going to offend someone, then don't eat it. Be more sensitive to people than you are the food. The food is going to be the same in your body, whether it's falsely prayed over in a temple or whether it's just freshly taken for your consumption. If it's a healthy piece of food, it's going to be just fine for you. We live in a day and age, though, where idolatry is still a real problem. We may not have temples to Diana, but we have so many self-serving and selfish behaviors. As we think about sports and commercialism and drinking and gambling, pornography, entertainment, soap operas, sleazy books, laziness, foods, electronics, self-indulgence, I just think we are saturated in a world with things of, um, that take us away from God. And anything that takes us away from God is idolatry. And I hope that we can uh, remember our baptismal covenants and strive to take upon ourselves the name of Christ and do all that we do every day in his name. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6 continues on. There is but one God, the Father, and of whom we are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. 
He's separating out the Godhead. We are of the Father and we are of the Son. The Father is the creator of our spirits and the Son is the creator of all things and we are by him, especially because of his gift of immortality. Paul continues on in chapter 8, verse 12, talking about the problems of offending other people. He's already talked about the problem with offending because you're eating foods that are offensive to other people. And now he moves on and says, by sinning against the brothers and sisters, you sin against Christ. So whether you're offending a fellow member of the church or someone else, it's the same as King Benjamin said, you've done it unto me. Chapter 9 now begins with Paul answering their questions on authority. And he claims his apostolic authority as well as the use of church funds. He's very concerned that they are not appreciating the leadership of the church as they should, and their funds are not being allocated correctly. He begins in verse 9. Am I not an apostle? Are not ye my work in the Lord? Now remember, this whole section are the questions that they asked him. And so he's defending himself, and he's equating himself with the other great apostles. And in fact, he equates himself with Peter. In verse 2, he says, You are the seal of mine apostleship in the Lord. Sixteen times in the New Testament, we find this use of this word seal. Now, remember in the ancient world, the Caesar or whoever it was that was the ruling authority has a signet or some sort of a ring that he could press into a wax that would allow um, either a, a letter or something to be sealed. They also had sealing units that are much stronger, that are done with leather or done with even metal to make seals. But usually letters and other things like that were sealed because the mail system isn't as good. You don't want something opened up until you're in the right hands. And so then if you're the one breaking the seal, you know that no one's tampered with it. And you can tell by the signet or the ring or the stamp on this wax seal what it would be like. And he says, you should have the image of Christ. I have brought you to Christ and you are my seal because I am laboring for you and you have now that seal on you. It's a beautiful image that he's using here. But we also use this image in Christianity in regards to the sealing power that God provides. And this is something that the early church knew about. It was lost during the apostasy, but it was restored again by our prophet Joseph Smith. When I've studied other faith traditions on what they believe about the seal, it's a beautiful idea, but there is more that is restored in the restoration. And we'll talk about that more in a few verses. Verse 9 in the BLB reads, and this is a very literal translation. Have we no authority to take about a believer as a wife, as also other apostles, and the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas? Cephas would be Peter. And we know that Peter's married because you remember back in the Gospels, one of the earliest miracles that Christ performs in Capernaum is healing Peter's mother-in-law. But I just love this idea that Paul identifies himself as married right here in this epistle where he, we just had questions about it and where we'll have more questions about it later. We don't know his marital status right now. Is he a widow or is he just on a mission without serving with his family nearby? I don't know. But the early saints knew and they also knew that he was married. And he is claiming that his marriage is part of his authority to work, which is really interesting because that's coming also from the Pharisaic traditions. All men had to be married if they wanted to have a position of authority. He also mentions the brothers of the Lord that were also married. This is great because remember, John mentions a couple of times that Jesus' siblings did not believe in him during his ministry. 
but we have a lot of evidence in the book of Acts and in the epistles that they came in. And in chapter 15, we'll talk a little bit more about that next week, how James even saw the resurrected Lord. Chapter 9, verse 8 in the BSB reads, Are Barnabas and I the only apostles who must work for a living? So it sounds like some people are confused or questioning the need for paid clergy. And Paul says, I have always paid my way. Do you remember back um, in the book of Acts, we learned that he was a tent maker and that he was working with Aquila and Priscilla. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 through 14, he talks about how the servant is worthy of being hired. Paul mentions in chapter 9, verse 13 in the NIV, don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? This goes back to the times when he was living as a Pharisee in Jerusalem, and the priests who are serving in the temple for at least five weeks a year are able to receive their, their portion of food from the offerings on the altar. They receive the meat from the animals that were sacrificed. So he says, the priests were getting paid, and yet I'm paying my own way. And we need to make sure that no one is accusing me because, you know, he's answering their questions now. We don't know what the question is, but the answer is, I, I work. I pay my own way. Verse 19 continues on. Yet I have made myself a servant for all that I might gain all the more. I also feel like the reason why Paul wants to use this title as the servant of all is because he is following the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, I emphasize this a lot in the Gospels. Christ came to serve and not to be served. He wanted to change the social hierarchy and teach masters how to serve. And Paul is saying, I came to serve. But he is not only serving the people of Corinth, he came to serve his master, Jesus Christ. Chapter 9, verse 20 to 22 in the NIV says, To the Jews I became a Jew, and to those that having the law, I became like one not having the law and I have become things to all people. He is a great missionary. He knows when he's in one culture to be sensitive to their cultural needs and to respect them. I find myself doing the same things even in, within my own nation, but when I'm talking to people with different understandings, I use different vocabulary. I try to explain things differently. Paul was a master missionary saying, when I'm talking to a Pharisee, I'm going to be more sensitive about those oral laws. Or when I'm talking to a educated Greek on Athens, Mars Hill, I'm going to use that vocabulary. And I'm going to quote those prophets. And as we see the book of Acts and in his epistles, he lived this. We can see lots of examples of him actually doing this. Chapter 9, verse 24 in the ESV, in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Remember that the marathon was a Greek tradition and it has continued to go through the Roman Empire. And this race and other Olympic races are well known by their community. And people ran to receive a crown of leaves. Sometimes it was made from oak leaves, sometimes celery leaves, and sometimes laurel or, or olive leaves. But this wreath, this crown of green leaf, people would train and do everything for in order to receive this wreath. Paul is saying, if people are committing hours a day in training for these things, shouldn't we also be preparing and realizing that life and our service can be likened unto a race and that we too are here to receive the reward. But under Christ's gracious gospel, all that strive can receive this great blessing. Chapter 9, verse 25 and 27 continue on. 
Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive the perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. I discipline my body and keep it under control. I read the ESV translation. You know, I've got some really great runners in my family and they're careful what they eat. They're careful what time they go to bed. They're careful how much they drink. They are real athletes in the idea that they want their body to be functioning at top level. And I really appreciate this analogy that Paul's using saying, let's control every aspect of our thoughts and our words so that we too can win the prize. And ours, of course, he calls here imperishable. It will be eternal. It will be the gift of immortality and hopefully eternal life. Chapter 10 begins with a beautiful reminder echoing back to the Exodus cycle. Now, this is very interesting because so many of his audience are Gentile converts. But I think I mentioned earlier, they did find a synagogue in Corinth. So we know that there were some Jews there that perhaps converted to Christianity. And that's why he's giving these examples from the Old Testament. And I love the parallel about this Exodus cycle, that everything in the cycle of the Old Testament children of Israel from Egypt all the way through is a type and shadow of Christ. We have many prophecies, including Hosea 12.10, that refer to those things as types and shadows of Christ. But here in chapter 10, verse 1 through 5, he foreshadows the plan of salvation. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 6. Our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And then he talks about that as a symbol of being baptized in the cloud and in the sea. And then skipping down a little bit, he said, they eat the same spiritual meat. And they all drink the same spiritual drink. And that rock was Christ, continues on. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So those that chose to drink and realized that it was a type of Christ or a type of their Messiah, and those that were leaving Egypt and left their cares of the world behind and tried to focus on their covenant relationship now with God, and those that saw the cloud as the spirit of God, the Shekinah as the pillar of fire, those people that saw those and internalized it were very few in number. It was only the younger generation that got to actually enter into the promised land. And interestingly, in the promised land, remember, they go in with Yeshua, Joshua. And so as we look at that whole 40 years of purification, remember 40 is the number for the purification period after a son is born. Symbolically, that's how it always plays out in the scriptures. As we started from Egypt and went down, there's a type of Christ. And on my chart, I have each one listed so you can see where they tied in. And then they end by returning into the promised land under the direction of Joshua or we as Christians go through our covenants, go through our periods of purification, and then we will be taken into our promised land by Yeshua, Jesus, our Messiah, the Christ. It's also interesting to look at the Exodus cycle in light of the plan of salvation. And on my handout and on my slides, I have a chart here. As we saw the Passover lamb slain, which were fulfilled in Christ as the Son of God being slain, in the plan of salvation, we realize that that sacrifice became an atoning sacrifice, and it is, allows all of us to become at one with our Savior. Moses as the prophet is typifying of Jesus Christ as the great high priest. And in the plan of salvation, we are told that we are to become like him, and we are to follow him. 
And we already mentioned that crossing the Red Sea is similar to baptism, and we have to go through baptism. And then the cloud is representative of the Spirit's guidance, and the fire, the pillar, gives that great protection as well as a direction. Then Moses received the law on Sinai, and Christ gave the higher law on the Sermon on the Mount. And we have the law of the gospel restored to us in its purity. The Exodus cycle had problems with children of Israel becoming idolaters and immoral. And Christ also was able to overcome temptation, just as in the plan of salvation, we too must overcome. Anyway, it keeps going all the way down until the entrance into the promised land. And it's very fun to see how Christ has created, has been able to beautifully um, bring together the types of his people in the past so that we can recognize his son and so that we now can follow him to our eternal home. It's absolutely exquisite the way the Father's plan is carried out here in mortality. Let's continue on now in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. And for the next five verses, up until about verse 21, he talks about the sanctity of the sacrament. He says in the BSB translation, Is not the cup of blessing that which we bless a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Now, anytime we can talk about the sacrament, I just want to slip off my shoes and realize we're talking about sacred space. We're talking about the Last Supper and the Lord's passion and resurrection. I'm so grateful that we have the image of this bread and water every week, every week to help us remember what an important part this is in our lives to try to internalize the teachings of our Savior. When he talks about the cup of blessings, he's quoting the Psalms. You know, Paul really knew his scriptures. He's always quoting the Old Testament. But here he's using that phrase, a cup of blessings from the Psalms, but it's also called the cup of redemption, as we talked about when we discussed the Last Supper. And the cup of redemption was the cup that was taken after the sacrament, which then Christ says, take, eat. This is in remembrance of my blood. Continuing on to verse 18, also in the BSB, those who eat the sacrifices will become fellow partakers in the altar. Now, this is great. Paul is remembering back to the Israelite priests and the Levites as they shared their sacred sacrifices of the meat with God. Now he's sharing the teachings of the sacrament with all the members, or all those who are going to be reading his letters. He continues on talking about the sacrament in chapter 10, verse 21. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. He goes back to that same theme of the idolatry. You know, as Christ said, you can't serve two masters in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, don't partake of the cup unworthily. And he expounds on that. But before he does, he has a small little digression where he quotes some of their statements and then gives answers. So at least we get something more substantial on what their letter said. Here he says in the NIV, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. Another quote from them is, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. So he's trying to teach them, yes, you have agency now. The gospel is a gospel of freedom. But that doesn't mean you don't have to be accountable. That doesn't mean there's not going to be consequences for your behavior. And if you are a disciple of Christ, you need to fulfill your covenants to do things according to his mind and will. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24, we've got some nice Joseph Smith translation changes. So I'd like to read it to you then. Let not man seek therefore his own will, but every man another's good. And interestingly, 
uh, those words that Joseph Smith changed are consistent with the words that were chosen in many modern language translations like the RSV and the NAS and the NIV. To me, my mind goes back to the Last Supper, since we're still talking about this sacrament generally, where he is showing to be a servant and chooses to wash the disciples' feet. He's saying, I want you to serve one another. I want you to not seek your own good, but other people's good. In verse 25 in the BSB, it says, you can eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. And in the King James Version, it uses the word shambles. Shambles is the meat market. It was just one of the earlier words that was used in the English language, and so that's carried on. And then in chapter 11, he says, I want you to follow my example as I follow the example of the Savior. Wouldn't that be wonderful if all of us could say that? Not only in our family settings and in our work settings, but even in our communities. If you're going to follow that person you're following a disciple of Jesus Christ. Chapter 11 continues talking about the ordinances. We've just finished talking about the sacrament, and now we're going to talk about another ordinance, and then later on he talks about other ordinances and baptism for the dead. And so he begins using this word that is often translated as teachings, but in King James it says in chapter 11, verse 2, keep the ordinances as I delivered them unto you. I think this is a really significant word in the historical tendencies because it's not really popular in Protestant Christianity to refer to ordinances or saving ordinances as being necessary. They believe Christ is necessary. And in the Catholic faith, they have their seven sacraments that take them to heaven. So part of the departure from Catholicism included, let's not emphasize the sacraments and let's stand on the authority of the scripture. Let's stand on the authority of the Bible and let's not necessarily and make um, seven sacraments to get to heaven because it's Christ who takes us to heaven. So as Joseph Smith is restoring ordinances, he is going counterculture to his era where he's living. But Paul came from a tradition with many, 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 many ordinances, a lot of ritual in the temples. And so this is something he loves, but it's interesting to see how Paul uses this word. I mentioned other people don't translate it ordinances anymore. They prefer teachings. So I went through and said, how does Paul specifically use this Greek word? And I went through every single reference that Paul uses. And every time he does, he goes back to the Greek setting that means to hand over, to transmit, to deliver up. But he also says when he uses it, I am sharing with you what Christ shared with me. I believe, according to the sixth article of faith, we believe in the same organization that existed in the primitive church. So do we have the same ordinances? Well, we certainly have the same sacrament. We certainly have the same baptism for the dead. And the prophet Joseph Smith said, Paul knew all the ordinances and blessings that were in the church. And he says this when he is in Nauvoo. So this is uh, after many of the others had been revealed. Um, so I feel pretty good about that confident statement that Joseph said, no, no, no. The early Christians had their endowment and they taught from that perspective. Verse three continues on, but I would have you know. Now, anytime Paul says, but I would have you know, he's praised them and then he turns around and corrects them. He's trying to get them turned around in the right direction. He's going to point out that something they're doing wrong. And in this case, he talks about women in a significant type of prayer and prophesying, where they're worshiping in a public setting, where they are given the gift of prophecy, and he wants them to veil their faces. In Paul's Judaic Pharisaic culture, 
the women never left their house, not even stood at their doorway unless they were completely covered head to foot, not showing their ankles, not showing their eyes or their fingertips. And then in the Greco-Roman tradition, the veil was more of a fashion statement. And you see coins of the wives of the Caesars who have beautiful um, ribbons and laces and fabric silks on their hair and their head as a statement of beauty. But the Christian veil is different. Paul is now describing something that has nothing to do with either of those. And instead of saying, I want to talk to you about the dress code, about times when there's certain prayers, when you need to have your head covered, instead of doing that, he goes back and talks about the theology that underlines why a woman's head should be veiled during these times of ordinances where there are special prayers and prophecies. He begins in verse 3 by setting up this order of creation. And in the King James, they use the words God, Christ, man, and woman. And this is a linear order. They also use the word head so that God is the head of Christ, who is the head of man, who is the head of woman. But it's interesting to look at the Greek words for head here. It means source or origin, sort of like the headwaters of the Nile or something. He is not using the word archon, that means ruler or chief. So he's not saying that the woman has a ruler over her. He's saying the father is the source of the son, who was the creator of Adam. And it was through Adam's side and similar DNA and maybe even stem cells. I have no idea how Eve was created. So make sure you, you go back sometimes when there's a question of what is he talking about? Just, just look up the Greek words and see what they mean. It's very easy now on the internet through things like Bible Hub. Verse 4, he says, Every man praying and prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. And again, he's using that same word head that means source or origin, and he's using it both the physical way and the symbolic way. So if a man is covering his head physically, he's doing it wrong. Now, many times in artwork, they show Jews covering their head at the time of the New Testament, but that did not happen. Men did not cover their head at the time of the New Testament. That came after the temple was destroyed. Um, and in the temple, the priests would cover their head out of humility before their God, and so the after the temple, the rabbis said, let's have all of us, since we don't have a building to go to, when we pray, let's, let's use our prayer shawls as a tabernacle. Let's make our own little tent so that every man can go before God in their prayers. And hence, they began covering their heads for prayers and then covering their heads all the time. But that's a later tradition. Paul is accurate on this one. Paul quotes part of Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our own image. However, he doesn't quote the whole thing. We have the rest of the verse in Genesis 1.27, male and female made he them. But Paul is trying very hard to say man is created after the image of God. He's trying to form this linear creation here. And in verse 5, he says, every woman that prayeth and prophesieth. Before I finish the verse, I just want to pause and say, this is a significant change in all all the ancient religions. I have studied as many as I can from this time period, and never is a woman a voice for the church or worshiping and having significant roles. And here in Christianity, we see a wonderful change where the Christian women are preaching and praying and joining in the worship services. But he also uses this word prophecy a little different than we did. To prophesy or to have the gift of prophecy, is to speak forth under inspiration. 
And as we learn in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 10, the gift of prophecy is the gift to testify uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. You have had a witness of the Spirit, and that is the gift of prophecy. And we're going to talk about that again in chapter 12 when we talk about the gift of the Spirit. But here in chapter 11, he's saying these women who are filled with the testimony that Jesus is their Messiah, is their Savior, are allowed to pray and to testify of that in these special meetings, these ordinances. In verse 5, he says, Every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head, that's physically uncovered, dishonoreth her head, meaning her source or origin, meaning her God and Christ. In verse 7, he explains why. And he says, the man, Adam, was created in the image and glory of God. But the woman, Eve, is in the glory of man. Now remember the word man, Adam, is also plural. Most of the time, in, especially in the King James, it refers to humanity. So he's saying man is made in the image of God, but woman represents the glory of humanity. It is through woman that all of mankind has come. And so woman represents the glorious nature of the next, next, and next posterity. So he says a woman needs to have her head veiled in reverence and respect to her head because she is a glorious being, but she needs to honor her creator and honor her God as well. How is woman else the glory of mankind? Do you remember in Moses chapter one, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man? This is also the role that Christ, our creator, has given to women. They too are to bring about the humanity on this earth. Woman is also the glory of mankind because it was through a woman that Jesus Christ was born. And so when we see woman in the singular, we can also think of Mary, the mother of the Lord. And she is the one that the glorious nature of all the descendants of Adam and Eve will have an opportunity to be saved. So during this ordinance, as the man and the woman come together before God in prayer, the woman represents humanity's glory, and so she veils humbly before God. But verse 10 says, For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Now in the NIV, it says the woman needs to have authority on her head because of the angels. Now these verses have been misunderstood even even in our own culture, where on the chapter heading of our Bibles, it says this is about a hairstyle. This is not about a hairstyle. He's talking about the sign of authority. A veil is a sign of authority to act in these ordinances. And Paul says, you have to have this power on your head to communicate to the angels that you are worthy to be functioning in this ordinance. This is a very different interpretation than most scholars come up with, or most people just reading 1 Corinthians on their own. So the veil not only represents the need to have humility before our Creator, but it also is a sign of the woman's authority to be acting in the Christian faith in these ordinances. This is a powerful message. You know, this whole setting is taking us back to the Garden of Eden. And it's in the Garden of Eden where the angels were given direction to guard the way of the Tree of Life. And now angels are able to acknowledge this woman's authority as she is striving to return to the presence of God in prayer. 
Brigham Young taught that angels guard the entrance to heaven, where both women and men give them signs and tokens to return to the presence of God. Continuing on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10, in the BLB, it reads, The woman ought to have authority on her head on account of the angels, which I think is quite significant. We have a good biblical scholar who's also spoken on these verses. He doesn't come from the traditions of the Restoration, but he is honest to the text, and he's very sincere in his what he's saying. I'd like to read to you what he says. The veil is not a sign of a woman's submission to her husband's authority, nor even of her social dignity and immunity from the molestation. It is a sign of her authority. Now, in the synagogue service, a woman could play no significant part, but in Christ, she received equality of status with man. She might pray or prophesy at meetings of the church, and her veil was a sign of this new authority. Its ordinary social significance was thus transcended. Women manifest hers by wearing a veil. And by discarding the veil, the Corinthian women were ignoring these blessings from Christ. You know, this is a powerful way to look at these verses. And I hope that you can share this interpretation with others, because I feel like we do disservice by thinking this is about hairstyles. There's only one change in the JST in this section, and that comes in chapter 11, verse 10. The woman should have a covering on her head because of the angels. That's even more beautiful because the word covering, remember, goes back to the idea of the atonement, the kafar, this idea of being covered in the robes of righteousness as Nephi describes in his psalm. Paul continues on talking about eternal marriages. Verse 12, for as the woman is of the man, meaning Eve came from Adam, even so is man, meaning the rest of humanity, also by the woman, but all things of God. So even though Eve was created out of Adam, the next male and the next female are created out of Eve. And so we have this interdependency, this mutuality, this wonderful relationship that each are grateful for their source. There's another aspect of the woman's veil that I'd just like to mention briefly. The woman's body becomes a veil as the new life is born. And the image of a veil and a woman seems quite consistent as these spirit children from heaven come through the veil and enter mortality through the woman's body. So there's many reasons why the symbolism of the veil fits beautifully. And as we read in Paul's discussion of the relationship between men and women in this interdependency, I like to think of it as the closer we get to each other, the closer we get to God. This image is used often by our church leaders, and I find it not only in my relationships with family members, but in my relationships with anyone. The closer we become to our Savior, the closer we come together as people, as humanity. He now changes to talk about another ordinance, and he says in chapter 11, verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was retrayed, took bread. This is the oldest record we have of the sacrament. We believe that the Gospels were compiled in the order that we have them after these earliest epistles. Um, the Gospels were probably in, um, you know, in some form or another. We probably had a lot of people who had notes taken down from what Christ said. But in this form, this is our first time. Chapter 11, verse 28 in the NIV reads, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. He's going back to the sacrament and says, don't partake of it without a thorough introspection. 
Make sure you've repented. Make sure you've taken the time to examine yourself because we don't want you eating it unworthily. In verse 29, he says, He or she that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. If we are eating unworthily, we do not appreciate what our Savior has done. We are flagrantly abusing the atonement when we do not honor the gift of repentance and forgiveness as we should. Chapter 12 now talks about the spiritual gifts, and this becomes some of the most well-known scriptures in all of Paul's writings. He loved the gifts of the Spirit, and I believe many of the ideas from Paul's writings become part of Joseph Smith's favorite subjects as well. We have the gifts of the Spirit in all four standard works. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Moroni chapter 10, Doctrine and Covenants 46, the seventh article of faith, and also in some sort of a degree, Paul mentions some of them again in Romans. Romans 12, if you remember, he had a few of them, but his longest discourse on it is right here in chapter 11. And on my chart and in my handout, I've got them written in parallel columns so you can see which ones are repeated where. And we're told that this is not an exhaustive list. I was so grateful a few years ago in General Conference when Sister Sharon Eubank said, Uh, there are so many more spiritual gifts than are listed there and that we need to seek them in our lives depending on what we need to better serve God. But all the gifts are used to serve others. In chapter 12, verse 3 in the BLB, it reads, no one is able to say Jesus is the Lord if not in the Holy Spirit. I really appreciated that slight more literal translation there. When we are testifying of Christ, make sure the Spirit is there in our heart so that it can be communicated. If we are going to bear witness, make sure we are bearing witness in the Spirit. Verse 7 in the NIV, the Spirit is given for the common good. So he's talking about these gifts of the Spirit. They're not for your own self-aggrandizement. They're to bless other people. And that message is repeated five times in section 46 when Joseph Smith is elaborating on what the gifts of the Spirit are. He keeps saying, they're only given to bless others. They're only given to build up the church. Don't pray for yourself for these things, for your own grandizement. The reason why God has given them is to bless others, is to bless our fellow men. In the middle of this beautiful list of the gifts of the Spirit, of faith and healing and visions and miracles, in verse 11, he says, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one. He's identifying how to know when it's the Spirit and when it's a satanic counterfeit. Because satanic counterfeits were huge problems, not only in the early Christian church, but also in the Restoration. Verse 12 to 26 emphasizes how the body has many members, and he's referring to the body as the Church of Christ. And he reads in verse 12, For as the body is one, and hath many members, also is Christ. I think what he's trying to say here is the church has room for all of us and we all need different strengths. As he continues on a few verses later, if the foot shall say, because I am not of the hand, am I not of the body? Is it therefore not of the body? You know, he says, just because you're not the hand, don't worry about it. If, and sometimes I feel like I'm an eyelash or a, or a toenail, you know, but I'm just grateful to be part of this body of Christ. I'm so grateful that we can all contribute something. And I just love the ability to have a church calling. Verse 28 reads in the NASB, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then the gifts of healing, helps, administrations, and then he ends with tongues. Then he repeats all of them except for helps in reverse order. 
And I just want to define a couple of words for you. Apostles is first because that's who is running the church. It is the quorum of the 12 apostles. The word prophets throughout the New Testament is not one person who's running the show. It is the persons who have the gift of prophecy. It is a group of people. It is many people. And sometimes it comes and goes who these people are. But we've mentioned this in the book of Acts as well. So in the New Testament, make sure you're using the definitions that they use for these different words. In chapter 12, verse 31, Paul encourages the saints and he says, now covet the greatest gifts. Or in the NIV, it reads, eagerly desire the greatest gifts. In the JB, it reads, this is the Jerusalem Bible, be ambitious for, or else in the more recent Jerusalem Bible, earnestly pursue. And I love this translation by F.F. Bruce. Beyond all this, I am showing you a way to reach the highest goal. And that's when he ends the gifts of the Spirit and focuses now on charity. That's chapter 13. As we know, this word for charity, agape, is one pronunciation Jesus uses almost entirely. Only once in all of the Gospels, when Christ is talking about his love, he is reusing that one word. It's only once when he talked to Peter at the very end of his life that he changes it that we talked about in the Gospels. In chapter 13, verse 1, he says, If I have not charity, I must become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Here I am spending my whole life preaching the gospel, but it's no different than hearing a drum being beaten if I'm doing it without the gift of charity, without unconditional love. He continues on in verses 4 to 7 in the NIV. Love is patient and kind, does not envy, and I'm going to skip down a little bit, does not boast, is not proud, does not dishonor others, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects and trusts and hopes, and then skipping down to verse 7, perseveres. Now, this is such a great handbook on how to learn to develop charity. I remember one time in my life, I kept a list of all the things wrong someone did, and It finally dawned on me that was hurting me more than it was hurting the other person. And I tore it up and apologized and have so grateful for these words of Paul. Actually, I just gave credit to Paul, but we have found other ancient sources where these words are attributed to the Savior. So we assume that Paul is actually quoting the Savior, which makes more sense as to why they would be in Moroni. But they're a little bit different in Moroni. And for those of you that have done the Um, your homework and written them out line by line, you can see there's always changes and innuendos, but both are powerful messages. In one of the attributes of charity, he emphasizes in verse 5, thinketh no evil. Now, this is amazing because lots of times when we do things on our own that we have a bad thought or we're perhaps even something as awful as pornography, we're, we're thinking evil, but it's maybe we're not hurting other people. And Paul points out here, or our Savior, if he is the source of these words, No, if you really have love for other people, you will not be thinking evil. You will not be having those, even those thoughts. The pure love of Christ should saturate all of our interactions and all of our behaviors. And when we have a sin, we can trace it back to not having love for other people or for God. Verse 12 continues on. For now we see through glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part but then shall I know, even also as I am known. This is such a beautiful hope for those of us who are losing our eyesight as we age. Um, 
it, we do see through glass darkly. We do not see as clearly as we used to, especially without glasses on. And what a blessing to know that someday the darkness and the confusion will be removed and we will be able to see and Christ will be able to see us as we really are. Verse 13 ends, And now abideth faith, hope, and charity. These three, but the greatest of all of these is charity. Paul repeats that over and over. And then we also find the same thing in other ancient literature that is not canonized. Barnabas and Polycarp also quote this. Peter quotes this. This is one of the major foundation stones of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are to strive to have love. And I pray that as you study these chapters in Paul, you can um, use this as a handbook so that we can all become greater disciples of Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.